Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Companies and Markets Show. I'm Megan Boxall, podcast editor at the Investors Chronicle, filling in for John Human, who's had a rough week and he, he's he's under the weather. Hopefully he'll be back this time next week. But I am joined today by Mark Robinson, the company's editor, who has written a very interesting taking stock this week on Tesla. How are you doing, Mark? Uh, not too bad, thank you, Megan. Good. And Phil Oakley, the IC's newest columnist, who is going to talk all things British today. So I think we'll start there, Phil. What is your column about this week and, and why have you picked this topic? I'm talking about um, a sort of rare beast on the on the UK Stock Exchange, which is a very, very sort of high quality business. And this is something that's um, very much a theme at the moment, particularly with investors such as, as Terry Smith and how successful he's been. And this is the kind of company that perhaps um, his new investment trust or um, we'll, we'll look at. And the company concerned is um, Spirex Sarco, which is a a maker of uh, steam technology and um, uh, specialist pumps. Doesn't sound very exciting, but actually the, the underlying business has been a phenomenally good one for years and years and years. It's a rare gem. It's a rare gem. These these companies are few and far between on the on the UK stock exchange, so I thought I would take an opportunity to look under the bonnet in this week's column. Yeah, yeah, and like you say, gems of the British market are what we're all looking for. What What is it that makes this company such a, an outstanding, as you call it, British company? I mean, f- first and foremost, when you're looking for these types of companies, you're looking for a company that does something that helps its customers usually solve some sort of problem, mm-hmm. but it does does something that not a lot of other companies can copy that sort of protects it from competition. Now, if all goes well and the company keeps keeps its customers happy and competitors don't come along and eat some of its lunch, what you tend to get is a business that becomes extremely profitable, extremely consistent. And these are the kind of companies that over time um, can make uh, investors, shareholders, lots of money. Mm-hmm. And like you say, a, r- a bit of a rare breed in the UK, maybe partly because great British companies don't come along that often and and also because of the way that the markets have been in the last few few years. Like, how, how do you grow a company which has such great barriers to entry, as you say, and, and can continue over such a long period of time, which is one of the things that you talk about here. You've got table back to 2008 of uh, of just awesome growth it just just keeps on innovating it keeps on developing new products with spirex sarco in particular i think one of the key secrets to its success has been it's been got very very close to its customers mm-hmm. um the large chunk of its sales a lot of manufacturing engineering companies have tended to sell via third parties via wholesale distributors Nearly three quarters of this company's sales are direct. It employs its own sales force. They're on the ground. They're walking the floors of their customers' factories and so on. And they're seeing things that can make their company, the com- their customers' companies more profitable. And mm-hmm. that leads to more sales. So one of the key things this company is putting a big emphasis on now in terms of growing is getting more business from its existing customers. And if you look at the recent results... Um, it's doing reasonably well at doing that. Growth's not stellar. Thing about these companies, because these companies have become so reliable and so predictable, because they can eke out a modest rate of growth, 
it, what's been happening is that, that investors have been prepared to put very high price tags on this yeah. these kind of businesses. Yeah. Now, whether that's sustainable, time will tell. But yeah. um, that's definitely the case with this one. And it is a problem, isn't it, at the moment with when you're looking for an investment opportunity. There are there are quality companies out there. There are great companies out there. But how much are you willing to pay for that that kind of quality? And and how how do you judge when that kind of company is a fair price? It's a it's a tough one. I think it's probably the most difficult task facing <laughs> investors at, at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've been um, aware of its qualities for some time now, but it, every time we've looked at it, we've highlighted the same points: the fact that it is it's slow, dependable growth. You also point to an outstanding dividend record, perhaps unparalleled. And this is something investors at. But every time we look at it, the, the multiples are in the high 20s into 30s as well. But prior to um, coming on air, I was just um, taking a look at the uh, some stats from uh, Bloomberg. And, and they look at the peer group, which is probably um, – it's not always that reliable with Bloomberg. But in this case, I think it is. They're looking at uh, companies engaged in similar industrial processes but on the continent. And when you look at uh, the metrics there, uh, it's enterprise to cash – profits, a multiple, along with the standard PE, and price to book, it, it doesn't look that bad a value at the minute, uh, all things considered. I think part of the reason why uh, readers will take an interest in this as well, because it, it uh, belies the notion that we we don't uh, tend to manufacture anything in the United Kingdom anymore. A lot of the recent success stories uh, uh, in, in corporate UK are linked to the service sector, and it's a massive part of the economy now. So we often overlook companies like this that have a, uh, I, I guess you could say it's a niche uh, point in the market. Um, I, I, one thing I, I meant to ask you as well, I mean, how much of their technology is, is it tightly covered by um, IP, IP protections? Um, I'd, have to, I'd have to get back to you on that one. That's not something that I sort of looked into this week. Um, I think the suggestion is is if you look at the the level of recurring sales and you look at how deeply entrenched um, this company is within its customers' businesses, the fact that they've been able to keep on growing from their existing customers in terms of organic growth is a suggestion that you know, no one almost got a consultancy uh, basis there. There is that. There is that, and I think it's that that is a, is a very big barrier to competition that you build up a long term relationship with your customer it's very difficult for someone to come from another company and say hey i can do this and i can do it better than spirex sarco yeah um so the company are bringing out lots and lots of different products all the time so it's a very evolving evolving uh, product base and this um you made a really interesting point towards the end of it as well and i'll quote here it says the overall overall demand for spirex sarco's products and services is driven by global trends in industrial production, which are currently positive. Now, obviously, you've, you've, uh, over the last 20, 30 years, you've seen massive industrialization in the Far Eastern markets as well. That's a positive uh, for the company going forward. But also, um, there's, we, we have a far more regla- um, stringent regulatory regime covering, covering manufacturing production now. And uh, you make the point also that one of the their technologies help you save water, power, and so on, and, and reduce the the level of industrial waste. Exactly. You know, this this the one thing I really like about this company. I think one of the reasons for its success is that it is its products solve problems or boost efficiency, and therefore it's it's got 
a very powerful USP. Mm. And um, the other thing as well is that a lot of this business is actually quite defensive. Um, you mentioned industrial production, which is a, a driver of growth and of new orders. But if you actually look at where this company makes most of its money, half of it is coming from repairs and maintenance, regular repairs and maintenance. Far more predictable. Yeah, very predictable. Also, quite low ticket price. You know, you're talking about average bill here of about £1,000. Yeah. This comes out of the company's day-to-day operating budget. Small small sort of upgrade projects, again, this is about this is about thirty five percent of the of the company's business. That again is day to day operating expenditure. So about eighty five percent of this company's business is equivalent to its customers' day to day operating expenditure. This is the kind of stuff that doesn't tend to get cancelled, yeah. particularly when the customers' processes are you know mission critical. Yeah, you know, you're not going to skimp on repairs and maintenance on a machine that's perhaps going to shut your factory down or sh- or stop you fulfilling an order. A big capital project such as a new uh, a new factory or a new set of machines, that's the sort of thing that will get cancelled in, in in a downturn. But most of this business is very very steady, very very predictable. Uh, we, we've seen uh, an example of that phenomenon when we had the oil price slump as well, because capex budgets within uh, energy markets collapsed yeah. within a couple of months. But uh, the companies that have a, a high revenue stream in terms of opex, uh, they've done okay, or relatively speaking. Yeah, and I think I think the thing for Spirex as well is that it, it is very very device diverse customer base as well, industry base. Half of its sales come from very dependable, sort of non-cyclical sectors such as food and food and drink, uh, healthcare. Um, there isn't a huge amount of exposure to things like oil and gas, which will get cut. And this, you know, if you take an example of someone like Rotalk, um, a company that that, that um, has a lot of attractive characteristics, this company got absolutely hammered uh, when the oil and gas market turned down, and that's something that. Um, also affected its share price, whereas Spirex Sarco, because it's got such a diverse customer base and industry base, along with a very resilient defensive revenue stream, has been able to just slowly, slowly, slowly just keep keep ticking away and getting bigger. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if uh, Terry Smith uh, does have a, a second look at that. I'm pretty sure he, he, he uh, will do. This this is exactly the sort of company that I would expect that that he would look at. You know, it's just over sort of five billion market cap mark. That's exactly the sort of range that he's looking at. As I said right at the beginning uh, of this, the key question is: you know, you're getting money coming in from investors, and you've got to put it to work. And the big risk is that you put it to put it to work in a really good company, but at the wrong price. Yeah. Having said that, I think you could have made that argument for the last five years. And um, what seems to, have, seems to have been happening is that the quality of the business and the growth of the business has been far more important in investors' minds than the valuation of the shares. But you will get to a point where price will become an issue if they keep on if the multiples of earnings or or operating profits keep on going up. Megan was talking about quality UK uh, companies involved in manufacturing before, and one that came to mind, a company I've always been interested in, is Gooch and Houseco. Now, it's not the same uh, performance uh, level as Spirex Sarko, definitely, but I think uh, this company, which um, uh, provides specialist uh, optical 
um, components, um, lasers, again for use in industry and advanced industry and increasingly in um, aerospace and defense. It's the kind of company as well that uh, should benefit for changes in manufacturing processes over the years and it will become, again, embedded in in large-scale man- uh, manufacturers as well. So uh, I, w- I wouldn't say for a moment that looking at um, uh, the the financial metrics over the last five years, would, it's comparable in any way, but it's that, it's that same type of dynamic that it's feeding into uh, positive industrial changes that you've uh, pointed out with Spirex. Mm. Uh, I think that's right. And I think if you look at, you know, the sort of common perception of, of manufacturing in, in Britain, that it's all died. And a lot of the, the heavy stuff has died. In fact, most of the heavy stuff has died. But what's left is actually really good yeah. be- because it has to be good to survive. Yeah, yeah. to have come through that transition and the, the trends which have have shaped the industry as it is now and still be a strong company. You have to have been a strong company well, to have right. done it. And there's companies that are supporting a heavy industry as well. I'm thinking of Vesuvius here as well, uh, for steelmakers, providing ways that they can save money, cut down um, cut down on pollutants uh, and increase unit profitability. Mm. It's, it's, it's applications of uh, high-level tech, and which is usually well-protected, very tightly bound up in, uh, in IP law. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, these type of companies do belie the notion that we don't make anything anymore. Yeah, and it is, it, it's, a, it's a quality, those quality metrics are what we're looking for. So, Phil, a few of the quality metrics in, in this article, what, what were they, the, yeah. the main? Just some simple rules of thumb. And f- first and foremost, you have to have a business that, that does something good yeah. f- for its customers. So that's first and foremost. You then have to have have the capability to keep on growing. Mm-hmm. And then when you start looking at the numbers uh, you know, that the company produces in terms of its financial performance, you're looking for things like high profit margins, um, high return on capital employed, and the ability to turn a large chunk of the profits into cash flow. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is you don't want lots of debt. Yeah, And St- Spirax ticks all those yeah, four boxes. Yeah, and actually, as we were saying, there aren't that many companies. They're quite difficult to find in the UK. I mean, one that springs to mind for me is Relex, a publishing company. Yeah, yeah. It's a quality company. It does yeah. it does what it says it does, and it does it well, and it generates high returns for its investors. Yeah, if you look at it, the return on common equity over the last decade or so has been incredibly uh, consistent. It's actually uh, built over that period. Same with the cash margin or EBITDA margin as well. Mm-hmm. That's been built up from about 20, 20%, which is absolutely fine, but now it's just under 26%. But it's remained fairly consistently creeping up over that period, even when um, even when we uh, in, in the wake of the global financial crisis, it didn't uh, pull off that much, which is... Uh, some achievement in itself. Yeah, yeah. Another one which we feature in the magazine this week is Clinogen. It's a it's a medical company, as uh, as Phil and I were talking about earlier. It, it is in the pharmaceutical sector. It, it does a lot of distribution of drugs to parts of the world where drugs are not as widely available as they are in the UK and in the US. And it is a quality company. It does what it does extremely well. It's got very high barriers to entry, as a lot of pharmaceutical companies do. And it's it's produced very high returns for its investors over a long period of time. It, it's, it's turned up with a very ambitious, acquisitive strategy at the moment, which is what our results section article is all about. And 
we're still positive, though, on on the company. I mean, as you've pointed out many times, there are, there are some outstanding British pharma and biotech uh, operators out there. Mm-hmm. But given the nature of the game, there you're rarely going to get that same type of uh, consistent growth over uh, over yeah, an extended a, period. I mean, it's not it's not within the nature of the beast. I no, guess it's a it's a higher risk sector than than some. But Kalinogen, yeah, it's a it's a solid option in the in the pharma space. Uh, there are a dwindling number of results, it has to be said, which is, it's been nice for us. We've got Tesco in there and Time Out, which I found a very interesting company, but not everyone does. It's it's one that's defied the odds of the media industry, though. It's doing all right. I, w- I was going to ask you the other day, just um, showing my age here, what do they actually do now? I mean... All sorts. It's, All sorts. Yeah, it, it's really interesting how much they do do. it. Because they, they still have the magazine, obviously, but it's free now. They don't make very much money from that. Yeah. But they have an enormous online magazine, and they make a, quite a lot of their money from advertising online. And they also make a lot of money from selling tickets and stuff online. But the big thing now is markets, and they are buying these properties all over the world and turning them into fancy marketplaces where they sell food and drink. Dom in the podcast studio has been to the first one, which is in Lisbon. Had a so good, what, what, good what time. They, what are they classified as now? Is it, is it still they're, still, they're still a media company, okay. but if you're going to be a successful media company, you've you've got to evolve, and Time Out is doing that, which is a good sign. Mm-hmm. And we, we have them on a buy because I think it's a good strategy, especially at the moment when there's a lot of, well, an increasing number of empty buildings around the UK, which used to be filled with things like House Fraser and Toys R Us. Okay. If Time Out can make good use of those buildings, then they'll have a good no, time well, that's, there. Uh, again, I'm... So, from age, quality UK companies to less quality US companies, Mark's column this week is on Tesla Mark, can you fill us in? What has happened? On the face of it, you would think it's about Tesla, and I've just used that as an example, really. It's about um, key person dependency risk, which is probably a a way that I get around the Mm -hmm. Tesla lawyers in case they (laughs) come a-calling. No, there's been a lot of news in this uh, over the last... Well, actually, a lot of news about the company over the last couple of months, but as uh, the readers will probably know by now, he's he's reached... uh, Elon Musk has reached... a a settlement with the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, whereby he's decided, well, they've decided that he has to step down into the role of chairman for the company for a couple of years and pay a $20 million fine. So um, th- this is based on the fact that he s- said um, via Twitter uh, that he was planning on taking the company private. He had financial backing. He was going to do it at $420 a share. The reasons for this... Um, uh, claim uh, haven't been fully examined, but uh, it basically sent the the shares up and uh, caused a lot of short sellers in the stock to take a bath. And so uh, I think he actually probably got away lightly. Uh, yeah, there are people who have lost a lot of money from this one tweet, yes. either because they were short in the first place or because they bought when he put this tweet out saying that he was going to take the company private because he had the financial backing to do so. It seems like it's kind of undermining the regulation which surrounds public companies. Yes, not for the first time either, but it might be a case of, well, potentially too big to fail or more more to the point, people have just looked at the balance sheet and, you know, Tesla in hock to just about everybody. Yeah. I mean, it would have taken, if, he, if he'd left the company, there's a, 
it may have been an ex- existential crisis because one of the points I bring up here, the, the company's received a lot of criticism because it's, it's run along the lines of a fiefdom and so there's inadequate uh, an inadequate management structure in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if he leaves, what happens then? What happens with a, a smooth transition? But it's an interesting point about US companies, which um, someone pointed out to me earlier in this week, which UK companies don't have this problem. In the US, a lot of the management, they are chairman and chief executive. Yes. And in the UK, we have at least got that dual management structure where if the chief executive or the chairman does something shocking, has to leave, there is someone else, another leader there who is meant to tidy up the mess that's left yeah, behind. I don't, I, I don't think it's a prohibition in the, in the UK, but I think it's part of you know best practice and yeah. recommendation. You don't have those two. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a distinct role for a chairman, mm-hmm. which is probably more important than that of the chief, chief executive of the way that uh, UK companies should be run. Yeah, and in terms of, well, just in, of, in terms of corporate governance and, and how you ensure that there is a succession plan. And in the case of Tesla, as you say, w- without Elon Musk, what is Tesla? What would Tesla have been? It wouldn't have even existed. And and has he got this kind of view that it's his company? Maybe that's what prompted yeah, him to put I mean, out that the, tweet. The, the, there's a history of this in the United States, though, isn't it, where the, the fortunes of great corporations are bound up with a single character. Yeah. You know, Andrew Carnegie, you know, J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Jobs at Apple. Well, yes, yes. But actually, you, you made the point there that Apple, uh, unlike Tesla, had taken... Uh, uh, appropriate action to make sure that a transition plan was in place. They had put a very capable finance director in long before Steve Jobs became ill. So when Steve Jobs had one of his moments, which he did have, like Elon Musk is having at the moment, he, he Steve Jobs was a genius in the same way that Elon Musk is. And it was prone to outbursts of of strange, strange outbursts. He had his Tim Cook there who... Who, who flattened things out. And a lot of people are saying this about Tesla. Elon Musk needs a Tim Cook. He needs someone who's going to be there to, to steady the ship. Yeah, well, the, the main point, if, if it's true what the reports indicate that he's been working you know, up to 120 hours a week, that's obviously isn't sustainable for anyone, let alone uh, uh, someone who's uh, who's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. Because I mean, he's he's getting and everyone's watching his every move. Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, and, and it's it's bound to be counterproductive uh, over time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the company did, and shareholders did have some decent. Um, uh, news this week as well because they, uh, I think for the Tesla Mark Three, they hit their uh, Q3 uh, production target, which is the first time they've done for this model as well. And given the, the various misses they've had in the past, which has put a lot of strain on uh, the balance sheet and uh, and his relationship with creditors, that that's good news. And yeah. so I, I guess um, from where we are at the moment. The best thing that could be said is if they do actually get in a, a generally independent chairman, um, which will take some of the pressure off him. But I guess somebody has to tell him at some point, just take a step back. Mm. I wouldn't want to do that job. Perhaps if, if you read this article, he'll... Uh, no? <laughs> Maybe. You never know. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure Elon Musk is a subscriber, but but in case he's not, hopefully they'll they'll find someone who can who can sort that corporate governance issue out. But interestingly, there have been cases in the UK recently. WPP is the one that springs to mind, and you've mentioned in the article, yes. where they have they have been reliant on the founder, the chief executive, uh, who had to leave under under a cloud. Martin Sorrell was, was, was taken away from the company, and they've been now under the guidance of a chairman who has maybe made some, some errors in the last few months, 
and WPP shareholders have paid the price for that, for that maybe corporate governance oversight. They hadn't got a succession plan in place for Martin Sorrell's exit. It's, it's hard to avoid entirely, and, and you would think the longer, the more mature uh, an organisation is, uh, the chances of this sort of de- dependency uh, are lessened over time, or at least you'd hope so. But I also point out uh, in the in the column as well, and it's something that our readers will be well aware of, is that uh, in the managed money space as well, this is a, a particular issue. You you think, well, we, we've uh, mentioned Terry Smith earlier on uh, in the podcast, uh, but there are various other examples uh, through the industry with Neil Woodford, who at one point uh, uh, could do no wrong, but has uh, struggled slightly in, in recent times. But again, it's a case... Are you playing the man or the ball here? You know, uh, in in terms of managed money, a philosophy uh, is far more mm. important yeah. than an individual. I think it can be quite a dangerous road to go down, but also one that is sometimes nice to follow a founder. And it's something that maybe you look at when talking about quality companies. It's nice to see founders, especially still invested in the business. But if they do have a sense of ownership and a sense of right, then yeah, maybe that is something that you should avoid. You know, it also raises the issue that if you look at there's a lot of investors who put a lot of stall in in, in family-owned businesses, mm-hmm. companies which have been founded and run by families, where where families still retain a a very high stake or even like management interest in the company. And some of these companies have been absolutely cracking investments. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think there's a tendency sometimes for for all of us or people in general just to get wound up with these personality cults, and you've just got to take a step back from that sometimes and just look at the underlying facts in front of you it's quite difficult sometimes but just you know look at look at what a business is look at what what's actually going on and try and keep away from the uh, from the personality and i think in the case of tesla you know the proof of the pudding will be you know is it a decent car business you know in the, in the sense it's facing okay it's a new technology but it's facing the same hard economics that Ford, General Motors and Volkswagen are ultimately yeah. facing. Yeah. yeah, we've often said in terms of the EV market as well that you might be better off following the study to... Uh that you would with the early miners as well. Look at the supply. Look at the supply chain. You probably get better value there along the line, and mm-hmm. uh, they're not quite as uh, exposed. But yeah, those points have potentially been overlooked when you're talking about Tesla, because the main headline is always going to be what Elon Musk has done or said in the last week. Yeah. Yeah, but an interesting, interesting thing to look at anyway. Well, Mark, Phil, thank you very much for joining me. It's been an interesting discussion as ever. There is so much more in the magazine this week, including, of course, the cover feature, What's Happening to House Prices, written by John Human, Jonas Crosland and Emma Powell. And also a lot more coming out on the website this week, including, Phil, your latest alpha column, which we can give a teaser to, a company which had results this week, SCS. So were, were they good? Uh, they were quite good, considering all the uh, all the doom and gloom that uh, surrounds the retail sector at yeah. the moment. And um, yeah, I think this is a very interesting company um, that seems to be defying a lot of the general general view of this market. And it's got some very good numbers, very sound finances, and potentially a very very cheap valuation as mm. well. So that's something that I. Uh, I've been looking into this Mm. week. Interesting as well today because we had numbers from DFS. Which were pretty bad. Yeah. Which again is a testament to um, how well SCS has been doing. Yeah, in an industry which seems to be in perpetual decline for someone to be doing It's quite interesting. You know, we started the 
podcast talking about quality companies and and the high price tags that are put onto those businesses and sort of SCS is not not a terrible business but it's towards the other end of the sort of quality spectrum probably in most people's eyes but at uh, at a vastly vastly different cheap price tag mm. One, one to look I think at. these type of companies as well, they're sort of bound up with the credit cycle to a large degree as well. well yeah, certainly it's the credit case cycle, with... housing market, yeah. general general economy, general consumer consumer confidence, really, yeah. All interesting stuff. Subscribe to Alpha for more on SES and other companies which Phil has done his roundup of this week. And, of course, there's more in the magazine. Algae stock screens, 11 cheap small caps on steroids. The normal comment from Simon and Bearbel. Join John next week for another episode of the Companies and Markets Show. Thanks for listening.